0: Welcome to the eighth episode of Baseline Intelligence, the podcast designed to make you a better tennis player and a smarter athlete. I'm your host, Jonathan Stokey. Today's guest is Dr. Mark Kovacs, a performance physiologist, researcher, professor, author, and speaker. He's the former director of the sports science and strength and conditioning departments of the USDA and is the CEO of the Kovacs Institute. He's also spent the past two and a half years as the senior director of sports science and health for the Cleveland Cavaliers. On today's episode, we talk about how to get started with a fitness plan designed specifically for your body, how to hydrate and fuel yourself properly, and how to get more power out of your first serve. So sit back, relax, and prepare to become a smarter tennis player. All right, Mark, welcome to the pod.
1: Uh thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here.
0: Yeah, welcome to the show. Uh I'm excited to have you on because as a coach, you know, this is a real blind spot for me. I I try to round myself out as a coach, but the body and and human performance is something that's not a strength of mine. So throughout the entire episode, feel free to talk to me as if I know nothing because I don't don't know as much as I'd like. But the where I want to start is a lot of people want to get into building up their bodies and kind of peaking their performance when you're just getting going, what should your first step or steps be in that process?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Cause when you are sort of getting started, um, doesn't really matter the age, it's more, you've got to build a foundation just like, yeah, I think most people understand the concept of building a foundation, but I don't think everyone really understands what that means. That means simple, basic, get, some, some weight on, on your body, some load, go through movements and motions that you're gonna to wanna to develop over time, but don't try to do too much too early. And we see too many people do this. They try to do super advanced exercises or add too much weight too quickly, or try um, so-called specific movements for things that they think they need to work on, which is probably correct, but they're probably too early in their program to do that. What I usually recommend is start with a very basic program, things that most people are familiar with, planks, lunges, you know, hamstring exercises, you know, shoulder movements, things that most people can do with bands or dumbbells, and really just try that for a few weeks to get on a good structured program. Always recommend getting some advice before you start from someone who's trained and is a professional in this, just to make sure that you're doing the things the right way, first off. And then two, there aren't any things that based on your injury history, based on uh, your limitations, um, prior surgeries, things like that, that you should potentially stay away from. Just because you see an exercise or a series of movements that a pro is doing, doesn't mean that you should be doing that same routine.
0: You know, I hear words like, you know, strength training or mobility, flexibility, endurance. What is the pecking order for those things? What's most important for a tennis player or where should you be looking when you're just getting started?
1: Yeah, it's it's a really important differentiator because I think most people understand strength training means we're loading the body with some external resistance. Usually, there's some body weight stuff you can do, but pretty quickly, you're going to want to add some external resistance. Uh, And every tennis player needs loading. It's how much, it's when, it's what exercises. Uh, But usually how we start is you want about a, a, you know, about a quarter of each. So you've got a quarter of your time is strength training, quarter of your time is mobility and flexibility. A quarter of your time is movement and speed agility, plyometrics type stuff. And then a quarter of your time is endurance. So if you start without knowing an athlete, that's sort of a good starting point to understand and then once you understand the athlete and depending on what your needs are as a player, you may do 50% strength training. You may do 5% um, endurance training because that's a strength of yours. You practice hard on court. You don't need a lot of off-court endurance work. So when, I, when you, you phrased it really well, what's the pecking order? that's very specific to what you need. So it's really hard to say everyone should do this because everyone's genetics are so different. Uh, I teach a graduate class in in exercise physiology and we talk about metabolism, how different that is from individuals. And we all know that based on different foods people eat and how people gain weight, lose weight, how quickly they process, uh, how your muscles function. So you've got fast twitch and slow twitch fibers just to keep it simple. And some people are 70% slow twitch. Some people are 70% fast twitch. So those two individuals aren't going, to, shouldn't be training the same way. Even though they're both playing the sport of tennis, they're not necessarily needing the same workouts. So the pecking order question has a lot to do with your physiology and then also your biomechanics. If you've got, let's say, ligament issues around your ankles um, or, or your knees or something like that, you're gonna spend a lot more time on strength training to support that area. Whereas if you don't have a lot of problems in that area, you may not do as much work there. You may do more work on your shoulder and spend more time there. So uh, it's, it's one of those things. And I do a lot of stuff very individualized. So when you're looking to start out, you may not need it so personalized. A sort of more general program can work, but pretty quickly, you want to get it as specific as possible for your needs. Um, But everyone needs all four of those areas I talked about. Uh, You just do a little bit more if you aren't as gifted in those areas or you don't have the training base in those areas and things like that to try to bring them up. You You definitely don't want a deficiency in one of those areas.
0: So one excuse that people come up with a bunch is obviously I don't have time. Right, we all we all don't have times for uh, things that are good for us sometimes. But you know, if someone only had thirty minutes a day, and I know all these questions, you know, have the the background that everyone has a different body. But if you only had thirty minutes a day, where would you focus your time on?
1: Yeah, so we've got really good data to say you want to get at least two strength sessions a week as a minimum. So let's say if you got thirty minutes a day, seven days a week, how do you how do you structure that? So at, at a minimum, you want to hit two strength sessions out of those seven, ideally three, but we do know that one session a week gives you some benefit. Two sessions a week gives you exponential benefit over one. And three sessions a week gives you more benefit than two, but it's not as big a difference as from one to two. So at an absolute minimum, we want two sessions a week. So that gives you that component Uh, Then depending on your age, the older you are, the more, the older and younger you are. It's actually interesting. We're seeing a big divergence here. The younger people are like juniors need to actually do more mobility than mid-level adults. And then once you get above 40, then you gotta start really focusing on mobility significantly as well. So you have these bookends. So we always wanna incorporate mobility And a lot of the time, what we'll do, we'll do it as part of the dynamic warm-up, and then you'll do it right at the end as part of the cool-down. So you may get 10 minutes out of that 30, possibly on some of that. So five at the front, five at the back, uh, and then you've got your 20 minutes to work on the other areas that we've talked about. So you've got two days at least on, uh, on your movements, speed and agility. And then if you need extra conditioning, you can put those in as well. So that quickly gets you to seven pretty quickly we got two to three sessions of strength, two sessions at a minimum of movement and plyometrics. Uh, and then, you know, that, that gives you two, two or three sessions left where you would then, you know, do your endurance work and an extra day of mobility. So it's a pretty easy way to structure it if you've only got 30 minutes a day. And that's a pretty good program. I mean, if you actually do that for 30 minutes a day, you'll get some really good benefits.
0: One term I've heard thrown around is overtraining and some people have the opposite issue. They have a ton of time and they're really motivated. and They get into it. What is overtraining and, and how do you know if you're in that, that mode? Yeah.
1: And so overtraining has to be sort of well-defined because the term gets used a lot and it gets misused. So I'll start at the complex and, and go down to the simple. So the true definition of overtraining is multiple weeks where certain biomarkers, blood work, uh, heart rate, waking, resting heart rate, heart rate variability, all these factors are above or outside of what their athlete normally is. So it takes multiple weeks to truly get into a stage of overtraining. doesn't usually happen. Most tennis players are not truly overtrained. Um, i personally only seen that once or twice in 20-plus years of working with high-level athletes that train harder than most people that we're talking about. So overtraining in the true clinical sense doesn't happen, but overreaching, which is a few days above what your normal is, um, happens all the time. So you may have a hard training week and you go four, five, six days in a row super hard. and By the end of the week, you can hardly move You may start getting a little scratchy throat, a little illness, because that's one of the first signs of overreaching is you you come down with a slight respiratory infection or mild cold. Uh, And that's your body's way of saying, hey, you kind of overdid it. Pull back. If you don't pull back, I am going to force you to pull back, which is the illness, which is sort of a, a nice way of saying slow down. If you keep pushing through that, what usually happens is you injure something. And your body's kind of giving you these signs and signals along the way to tell you you're being a bit of an idiot. You're not listening to yourself. But most people still don't listen to those signs and symptoms. So that's usually what most people are talking about when we're saying, hey, people are a little overtrained. Or usually it's more they're just doing a few days too many at a level that their body isn't really adapted for. Uh, And normally, it's not the training that's the problem, it's the time outside of training that is inefficient. They're not sleeping well enough, they're not hydrating well enough, they're not eating well enough. uh, And there's some psychological stress, whether it's school, a family, um, travel, other things that are contributing to those stresses. Because most of the time, you don't become overtrained from your training. You become overtrained from the lack of recovery in all these other areas.
0: So you just mentioned nutrition and kind of hydrating. One thing I I actually would love your opinion on this is something my dad told me when I was 12 and I just always believed it, but he said, if I had a tournament on a Friday that I should start drinking on a Tuesday or Wednesday, I mean, you should always be hydrated, right? But Hey, make sure you're, you're really taking in fluids a couple days before, if you want to see the benefit.
1: Yeah, so depends what you're talking about. So there's things that hydrating all the time are beneficial for. um, You know, joint health. um, You know, there's the ability to um, stay hydrated throughout the body has value above and beyond. So that there is some truth to. But for specific, say weekend tournament and being well hydrated from an um, just a general hydration standpoint usually 24 hours is plenty. Um, So from that perspective, so he was, he was technically right, but maybe not specifically for what you were thinking about Um, because staying well hydrated daily provides a lot of health benefits above and beyond. Hey, are you going to lose, you know, four, four or five pounds of fluid in your match that that's can be prevented by drinking well about 12 to 24 hours before. So the, and then the hydration side of it is how do you keep that fluid in your body when you're sweating so much, which is the real challenge for most tennis players, because just to give some numbers to it, you know, it's in in liters. Uh, I'll talk it through. It's like one and a half liters or so is a pretty high sweat rate for most people, but really high level tennis players can sweat on the guy's side. Guys sweat more than girls usually um, two and a half to three liters an hour which is really, really high. And your stomach can only comfortably digest about a liter to a liter and a half of fluid. Uh, so you're at a one to two liter deficit every hour of tennis that you play in really hot humid conditions. And over the course of a match, you can lose you know, uh, you know three to five kilograms of weight, which is close to 10 pounds potentially, uh, of body weight. And we've seen a ton of players lose 10 pounds in a match. Um, that's after hydrating. So meaning that they played three, three and a half hour match, they're drinking as best as they can, but your body doesn't like to consume more than that because of your kidneys and clearing and all the things that need to happen. Uh, So that's where you get all these problems with the the issues that a lot of tennis players have, especially in the summer. Uh, Females have a sweating related issue, but they don't sweat as much. um, So that you don't typically see as many issues with cramping, hydration related issues in female players. You still can see it, but you don't see it at the same percentage as you do on the guy side.
0: What about nutrition? You know, night before a match, that's a, it's a common question I get asked. What's the best type of of meal that you could have before a tournament?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And is that's probably more personalized than anything we do is we spend a lot of time on um, nutrition work specifically for the individual because the day before is less important than what else are you doing? Because if you're, you know, there are athletes that are, that are carb burners and fat burners. So you can actually test for that. To So someone who's a carb burner needs a lot of carbohydrates the night before. Someone who's a fat burner doesn't need the same amount of carbohydrates. So saying, hey, eat a big bowl of pasta is great for a carb burner, whereas a fat burner isn't going to feel as good eating a big bowl of pasta. They're gonna have a little bit more on on the fat side of things that night before, so it may be you know a good, a good piece of meat with some sauce and you know uh, something else like a some type of starch, but it's gonna be you know brown rice or something. So that's where it's a really it used to be. You know when I first started, you'd get the same recommendation for everyone: uh, eat your bowl of pasta and you're good to go, kind of thing. And we've learned a lot more that you can actually be you know, potentially putting people in an environment where they're not as efficient when they play. So you do need to um, personalize that a little bit more. And then it also comes down to what do you normally eat? Let's say you're on a relatively low carb diet, not completely keto or anything like that, but you watch your carbs throughout the week, you're more, you eat more salads, you have, you know, um, sweet potatoes, you have some brown rice as, as your starches. Don't change that the night before. Meaning, don't all of a sudden go in and okay, I'm going to have you know, uh, you know, a bunch of white bread that I'm not used to eating, or you know, a, a ton of pasta that I'm not used to eating. That's probably a recipe for disaster as well because your body, digestive wise, isn't used to the, those sources. And it, like everything else, it takes the body a few times to get used to and get comfortable with being efficient in the metabol in the metabolism of what you're eating.
0: So I had a USCA coach. This was probably when I was 16, and I love candy. I, I I've always loved candy, and they said something that, "Hey, you're you're deep in a third set. It's okay to have a couple Skittles every changeover." Is that still holding true, or is there better stuff out there that can help you during a match?
1: No, it's uh, it's very true. Uh, Skittles is basically pure sugar. It's it's you know it's a relatively pure form. I mean it's processed. But when you're talking about percentage of sugar compared to everything else in a skittle, it's nearly 100% sugar. So from a standpoint of quick releasing, being able to get energy as fast through the bloodstream to the working muscles as you can, quick releasing sugars is one of the quickest, best things to do. Um, The goal would be to not necessarily need that if your diet throughout the match was a bit better and you didn't have a dip or you weren't needing that quick release of sugar. But if you look at most of the things the guys and the girls are drinking and eating on court still today, a lot of it is pure sugar. It's packaged in different ways. You've got, you know, you've got honey varieties. You've got maltodextrin varieties. You've got, you know, you know different sources of sugar but it gets broken down in the body pretty similar especially when you're exercising and that's i think the thing a lot of people don't always understand or recognize that when you're exercising things are happening at a much faster rate that's not to say you eat skittles two hours before a match or three hours after a match that's not the purpose throughout the rest of the day you're going to eat very differently than potentially during the match because during the match is sort of an emergency situation. You have to sort of break the glass and, and get what you can as quick as you can.
0: I want to shift gears a little bit and just talk about how human performance, getting stronger, getting more mobility, how that will actually translate to, you know, your on court, the physical game. You know, everybody uh, always says, oh, I want to hit my serve faster. You know, I, I want more pace. Can you explain maybe the most important parts of the, the service motion and, what muscle recruitment you need to actually generate the most power on the serve.
1: Yeah. So the serve, as we know is one of the more complex human m- movements out there. Uh, it's difficult to, to do ef- effectively because you're coordinating every part of your body. You've got a ball that you have to hit in flight and you have to use and implement the racket through a pretty large range of motion to get it from your start position behind your head and then up and out into the ball. So there's a lot of these processes that have to go on in half a second to make an effective serve work. And that's why you see so many challenges with people hitting effective serves consistently. But we do know so much more now than we did 10 or 15 years ago about what's the, what's the main driver for power. You know, the involvement of the back leg is huge. It's a major driver and the more powerful you can uh, have your back leg. So for a right-hander, that would be their right leg the more you can get explosive through there. And again, it's not only about how strong are you. Like there's people that can lift three, 400 pounds on a squat, for example, that don't serve that big because they don't know how to transfer that force. Because force and power are two different things. Force is how much load can you put on something. So how much can you lift? Power is how quickly can you lift the load that you are using. And that's really what we want in the serve. We want someone to be super powerful we're not as concerned how strong they are, but if you train strength the right way, it transfers to power if you do the right way of, of training. So that's an important uh, thing to recognize. So back leg is really, really important. Hip rotation is, is a big one that a lot of people don't train very well, is how mobile are you through the hips and can you rotate into that position effectively during the loading of the serve and the best servers do this so well and so efficiently, and inefficient servers don't. So that's a big one that a lot of people overlook. Then the other big area is the the, the shoulder, but the back side of the shoulder, because the objective here is can you get the racket sort of down, you know, behind your head? Can you get your elbow pointing to the sky and get can you get the tip of the racket pointing to your back heel? Great servers all get that position. It's sort of that racket drop type position where the tip of the racket is pointing down towards the back heel, the elbow is pointing to the sky. Uh, a lot of players don't have the mobility or flexibility to get down there, and that's where they lose um, some power. Uh, and then the, the, the last sort of stage, just after contact, is the ability to get into what we call long axis rotation, which is uh, shoulder internal rotation and forearm pronation. You hear before, You hear pronation a lot in the serve, but that's right at the end of the movement. We need to have internal shoulder rotation as well. So you need those sort of three big areas to work efficiently. And as you're working on that, there's little things like ankle range of motion makes a bit of a difference. If they don't, can't dorsiflex or pull their toes to their shins very well, and they're very tight through that, you can't actually load into that back leg very effectively. So there's little stuff like that that you would work on Um, once you do the big things, but again, that's sort of once someone's got a really good level and you are just trying to get say two or three more miles out of them, um, most of those things we talked about earlier, that'll add five to 10 miles an hour pretty quickly without changing technique. That's just getting the body better.
0: Is there any difference? You say loading the back leg is super important between platform and pinpoint stance. Is there one that, that uses that better?
1: So it depends a lot on what the individual body can do. So an individual that has really good hip movement and can rotate really well finds it easier to have platform because they've got a stable base and they can rotate around that stable base. Individuals that aren't as, as good there typically slide their foot up more, more frequently because they can bring their foot up. And as they're dropping into that position, they're turning slightly as the foot comes up. So... That's if they do it well. Uh, a lot of people don't do that so well, and that's where we see usually the the pinpoint stance is where we see a lot of problems because players shift into that front leg very early and don't load the back leg. So they shift very very early, all their weight off the front leg, uh, and that's a big problem because you can't load effectively. Uh, you're still going to make contact with the ball. There's plenty of servers out there that sort of get away with it, but they're their consistency is usually not that good. And the other big thing that happens a lot of the time is they over rotate early and then it becomes more of an arm serve and they're generating majority of their power with their upper body. And over time that correlates with shoulder problems, elbow problems, and and a lot of ab and lower back issues because they're using the wrong part of their body to try to generate the majority of the end uh, force rather than using their legs and then transferring that effectively through their chain. Uh, And that's why if you actually look at the best servers of all time, none of them really had major injuries. Whereas if you look at a lot of the less than great servers, many of them, the ones that have shoulder, ab pulls, lower back stuff a lot, you go back and you look at their serve techniques, there was always something that was a red flag that never got corrected because they were so good. They won so many matches. People didn't want to change it. You can look at people like Pat Rafter, Andy Murray. There's a ton of guys like that that you look at and you're like, yeah, if they would have adjusted their serve, you can't for sure say they wouldn't have had some of their issues. But it correlates very well with what their issues are because of some of the mechanics on on the motion. But they were such great players and they were able to get to a point without stuff breaking down. Um, But at some point that stuff breaks down. Then you see other people say like a John Isner, a Pete Sampras, someone like that, that, you know, has served more aces than just about anyone and their lower back held up, their shoulders have held up. You know, all the things that would typically break down with that many sirs, they were able to sort of maintain it because of the efficiency of the motion.
0: I know this is going to be a really tough question for you to answer, but I'm going to try anyway. I am 37 and I have lower back pain, and my, my technique was horrendous, and I know there's a lot of adults out there that play as well that experience lower back pain. Is there a common stroke or fundamental that you see that could be the root cause of that for many people?
1: Yeah, so there's, there is a couple commonalities on lower back pain if it's just strokes. We've got to then say, okay, what do you do exercise-wise, strengthening-wise, and all that, but just purely from a technical standpoint, one of the biggest things is when you open up too early on your serve, meaning that you should be side on just before contact and then you do start to open up as you get to contact. But a lot of players throw the ball up and because of their stance and how things happen, they actually start over-rotating really early and then they actually make contact with their shoulders and their hips facing the net. If you're like that, that puts a lot of strain on the back because what happens is you're not only rotating around your spine more, But the second big problem, which is even more important and what causes most of the problems is you do excessive flexion. So you sort of collapse a contact as you're rotating. And that's where you get a lot of these problems at L4, L5, S1 of the spine. Uh, And we see this a lot with youth athletes as well. So as they're going through puberty, their limbs are growing their heads get out of control. And they have a lot of problems with technique at that age. And that's why you start seeing a lot of these stress reactions, stress fractures at 15, 16, 17, sometimes for a lot of junior players because they do the same thing. But at that age, they're not fully developed. So they don't usually get a bulging disc like an older player would. What happens there is they usually get a parts fracture. uh, And that's a sign usually of something happening technically there. So that's the main one on the serve that we usually see. And then on the ground strokes, you also see when they plant their outside leg in an open stance and they don't actually rotate out of it, meaning that they load off that leg and they hit with their upper body, but their leg still stays back. So if they don't release their leg, what happens? The spine rotates around a stiff lower body. So they're like moving very quickly left when their body should be actually going forward potentially for a right hander hitting a forehand. Um, so that same thing can happen on the back end as well if their foot position uh, isn't right and they don't release the, the, the body effectively. So those are the two main ones. Um, back when people used to serve volley a lot, sometimes there was an issue there where they didn't use their legs very well and they would actually bend over and sort of reach with their upper body without their lower body getting into a good lunge position or a good deep squat position for volleys. But you don't see as many people volley now. So even in doubles, um, so we still see some of those issues with older players that do serve volley or like to play a lot of doubles and come in when they're not getting low into those volleys and they're reaching. That's where you do see a lot of the lower back stuff. Also, we're starting to see a lot of pickleball players start having lower back issues because, you know, part of the sport is you can't go so close to the net. So they try to reach forward and all they do is they reach with their upper body and their legs don't move. And that's one of the reasons where we're going to see a lot of lower back problems in pickleball over the next five to 10 years. uh, If people don't work on that.
0: That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that for pickleball. Um, Okay. So we're going to, you know, finish this up with some Instagram questions. You got a ton. This Kind of goes into what we just spoke about, but what do you think the most common reason for injuries is? Is it poor technique or is it a strength deficiency that leads to poor technique?
1: Yeah, so most of the time it starts with poor technique, um, because you can strengthen someone so well, but if their technique is really bad and they play four or five hours a day, if they're at a you know real serious, it's really hard to, to strengthen a, def- uh, a deficiency or a dysfunction. Um, because they just, you don't have enough time off court to strengthen all that. If you're going to be out there four to five hours. So I always start with technique, make sure we do work as well as we can to optimize and make your technique as efficient as possible. Uh, and then spend a lot of time on the off court strengthening, um, stabilizing mobility so that you end so that you have good muscular endurance in those movements. Uh, and a lot of people don't do either. You know, they go play, they do a little bit of off court work, but it's not very specific to their issues. So, so many times, working out in the gym, just doing generic movements and exercises can be counterproductive. Because if you've got a bunch of dysfunction and you just try to load that with extra weight, all you're doing typically is loading a dysfunction. You've got to sort of figure out what the dysfunction is. Are there movements, exercises, stability, things I can do to, to stabilize or provide mobility in certain areas that need it before I load it heavy. And many times people miss that step.
0: Everybody's different. We've, we've discussed that, but if you could tell a tennis player to only focus on one part of their body to improve performance, what part of the body would that be?
1: So a broadly lower body, definitely. It, the closer to the ground you get better at the better everything else is because it's everything comes up the chain. So if you've got a problem with your ankle, with your toe, um, with your calf, it's going to change your gait and your loading parameters all the way up. And that's going to, over time, result in problems in your core, in your hips, in your shoulder, in your elbow. So as much as you can focus on your lower body and that old concept of you're only as strong as your weakest link, that's so important, especially lower down the chain. Because most upper body injuries are lower body Um, driven, meaning that very rarely does someone have an elbow problem or a shoulder problem that isn't something to do with the opposite side, hip, calf, ankle, foot, something going on. And it may have been six, seven years ago. So, you know, let's say a junior rolls their ankle at 13, misses a couple weeks, doesn't do good rehab, comes back, everything's fine, goes on, doesn't think about it. Then in college shows up and starts getting elbow and shoulder problems. Many times that was because they didn't rehab that ankle four or five years earlier effectively, and there were subtle changes that happened over time. And at some point, the rest of the body had to adjust and adapt, and that then broke down. Very rarely are injuries due to something, unless it's an acute injury like you you know, tear a calf, tear a hamstring, something that may be an acute issue. But even the acute issues are usually driven on, from a tennis standpoint is usually driven by something that's been more chronic and something overcompensated and just couldn't handle that anymore. Did a good job for a while. Everyone, you you thought as a player that everything feels great, but there was something compensating. And at some point that breaks.
0: What percentage of total developmental time should be on court versus off court? And then does that vary based on age or level?
1: Yeah, that that's a broad question. Without knowing the age and the level and the goals of the athlete as well, I mean, what are we if we're if we're talking about someone that's trying to play pro or play at a really really high level, um, it's at least fifty fifty most of the time. Um, you know, you start with more time on court, and then you realize you can't, you know, hit that many tennis balls. It's just feasibly impossible to hit eight hours a day. Um, it's not like golf where golfers can actually go and hit eight hours a day of golf balls. And they do many of them tennis players physically, yeah, you know, four to five hours realistically is about the max for most people to hit tennis balls. So you still got five, six hours a day of time to spend on your body. So normally we, we start with a 50, 50 sort of mix. You know, if you're doing four hours a day on court, you know, can you get four hours a day off court if you're trying to play pro? And that doesn't mean, Um, you know, that's a combination of conditioning. It's a combination of strength work. It's a combination of mobility, flexibility. um, And even we put recovery into that, structured recovery, meaning that that could be massage, that could be um, variations on taking care of blood flow, things that you do for your body, stuff like that. So don't think of that off-court as just hard physical training because that would be not feasible either to do four hours of hard physical work after four hours of tennis work. But normally try to get about a 50-50 split. For most people that aren't looking to play at that level, it's usually about 50% we recommend. So if you play two hours of tennis, you know try to do an hour of physical work. Um, so start with that. And then you may need a little more than that if you've got deficiencies, limitations, things like that. So again, my frame of reference is competitive players that are looking to get the most out of their game. So if you're less competitive, more recreational, trying to just do enough off-court work so you don't get injured on court, um, then you know you may be able to get away with 25% of your time. Um, but again, it just comes down to what are your goals.
0: And the last question, and I'm going to need you to explain what this drill actually is, but they want to know how you came up with the MK drill.
1: Yeah, so the MK drill is something we did for a research study, probably... over 15 years ago, um, it was, I was at the university of Alabama at the time, and we were trying to do some team conditioning exercises that, uh, you could do with a a decent number of people on a tennis court that was more specific than most of the typical tests. So we literally did it with a three to one, uh, work to rest ratio. Um, but pretty much means that you rested three times as much as you worked and you started at a, Uh, doubles line to doubles line and back. So what a lot of people do on a tennis court, you do it one time and then rest. So it takes about five seconds, give or take, depending on how fast you are, you rest 15 seconds. Then you do down and back twice. And so it's 10 seconds of work. You have 30 seconds of rest. So you literally do that until you do six times, which is about 30 to 35 seconds for most people. Um, And then you come back down off that. And the beauty about that takes about... 12 to 15 minutes, depending on how fast you are. So it's, and it works in the longest point possible. No one's playing a point much longer than 35 seconds. So it's trying to simulate the longest point possible and then points in between that from five seconds up to 35 seconds. And you can then estimate VO2 from there. You can show the levels of player. And it was just a tennis specific endurance test that was hard, but you could do it with a large number of people.
0: That's awesome. All right. Well, uh, Mark, it's been a pleasure. And, you know, like I said, this is a blind spot for me. So I know I've already learned a lot. And the only thing I was hoping for was that you'd tell me I could start eating candy again off court. As long as you're
1: playing tennis and you're on court, no problem.
0: Yeah. I'm standing on court. Does that count?
1: Yeah. Hey, listen, we have a whole different set of rules for coaches, by the way. There's a whole different discussion for coaches.
0: Well, we'll have to have that off air. I want to hear all about that. Uh, but thanks for coming on. And, and where can we find you?
1: Yeah. So just go to dot So if they're players, that's sort of the, our, our site. That's our institute. We have an online uh, resource there. They can go to dot as well for some of the stuff we do. Um, and then, you know, the, those are the two ways they can reach me. And you can go on Instagram as well. Co- uh, Kovax Institute uh, on Instagram as well.
0: Well, Mark, thanks again. And uh, hopefully we can do it sometime in the future. Awesome. Thanks so much. This was great. Thanks again to Mark for joining us today. Lots of cool information and things that I had heard for the first time about hydration, how to properly fuel, how to break up strength and conditioning programs by the day and by the week. Uh, The thing that stood out the most to me, though, was the loading of the back leg on the serve and how that translates to service speed. So I'm really excited to go out and try some drills where I emphasize the loading of the back leg and see if that results in some extra speed for my players. Look to my Instagram at Stokey Tennis for some drills that will focus on loading that back leg. And uh, hopefully we'll all be serving faster by the summer. I want to thank you all for listening. I know there are a lot of podcasts out there and I'm grateful you chose to join me today. I'm motivated to evolve and improve. So please subscribe if you enjoyed the episode and leave a comment or review so we keep getting better every week. For more, check out my Instagram at Stokey Tennis for clips from these podcasts, as well as general drills and tips to help your tennis game. Thanks for listening. I hope you just improved at tennis without even hitting a ball.